The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, today our show is about a couple things. One, it's about how to be, how not to be perfect or how to be perfect. And it's also about alcoholism. And I think, you know, we're sitting on the campus at the University of California, Irvine. We have people that are drinking and have go to parties at frat parties and and they just don't see themselves as ending up having alcohol problems and and as you know Lloyd I've had so many divorces that I've uh, helped to mediate that have been uh, as a cause uh, a really a, a great cause has been the alcoholism in the family and so this is something that I have dealt with for many many years but I think that this is really a, a wonderful book because it just gives us a, a humorous way of looking at what what happens um, when you have an alcohol problem, uh, illness, and it also just shows us a way of you know, you know, recovery and how do you get through this. Let me tell you a little bit about Dana Bowman, who is our wonderful guest today, who is the author of this book, How to Be Perfect Like Me. And it's it's very humorous. Uh, she's a longtime English teacher and a part-time professor in the Department of English at Bethany College in Kansas. And her first book was called Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery. And this was published by Central Recovery Press. And it was chosen as a two, 2016 Kansas notable book. She's also the creator of the popular Momsy blog, Dot com and that's spelled M-O-M-S-I-E-B-L-O-G. And she leads workshops on writing and addiction with a special emphasis on being a woman in recovery while parenting young children, which is not an easy task. So without further ado, I just want to welcome you to our show, Dana. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so how is it that you decided to write the second book after you wrote your first one? What what well, uh, prompted? I, good question. I, I had it kind of in my corner pocket the whole time that I was writing Bottled, because the deal is Bottled was about those first few, even I would say months to maybe that first year of getting sober. And, um, and then Perfect, I already knew was going to get written because before I even started on Bottled, I had relapsed. If only, I think it was a short relapse for about seven days, and I knew that that's what I wanted to write about next. So therefore, Perfect came next. 
And so how is it that you became addicted? How did this all start? Well, and that's a good question, but there's no like one moment where it just clicks on versus off. Or um, (laughs) if you're in addiction yourself, you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out when that moment is. But, um, you know, it's funny. In in Bottled, I even have a chapter called I Never Danced on Tables, which was kind of my (laughs) whiny attempt at saying, darn it, you know, if I'm really going to be this alcoholic, you know, mom, why couldn't I have gone to Vegas and, like, had a (laughs) tattoo and, you know, all this. But really, my drinking, even from my my 20s was not crazy. It wasn't over the top. Um, I was very controlled about it. I was very low key or tried to remain. So I did most of my drinking by myself at home at night watching Netflix. And that was my comfort zone. And that was my comfort thing. But I will tell you, um, there were always some red flags. There were always, you know, a few little blips here along the way. It seemed to me in my 20s and 30s that a lot of my relationships were centered around having that um, comfortable blanket of wine to help me get through the hard stuff, you know? Yeah. But when I got married and when I had kids, it just, this is when you invite these little humans or a big human in terms of my husband (laughs) into your life and you can't control them and you can't make them perfect. And that's when, like I I always put it, that's that's when the rubber hits the road. That's when I really amped up my drinking to try and control my anxiety and my perfectionistic qualities. Yeah. You know, I've had so many clients who have had alcoholism as a, you know, as an addiction. And Uh when I ask them, like, what is it that you're feeling before you take that drink? And they and everybody tells me it's anxiety, it's anxiety. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's so different with normies. We we call them normies. Like my husband's a normal drinker, and he he, bless his heart, he he was so supportive and great. He doesn't have alcohol in the house anymore. He just doesn't keep it around me, but he still goes out and drinks every once in a while. It's usually centered around going to see a football game because that's his thing, and. And he's so stoked because he gets to go see his friends and hang out with his buddies and go to his alumni college and pretend that he's 18. <laughs> and um, again, and then, and I'm, and I'm like in my head going, he's, you know, he, he gets to drink. I bet he's really looking forward to this because he gets to go away and drink because I'm not going to be around. And so finally, one time I kind of admitted this to him. I'm like, aren't you kind of looking forward to this or even sort of excited because you get to go off and have your and and have you know your beer and your Guinness and all that. And he's like, "What?" And he it, he's like, "I'm just excited to see my friends." Like, that's the difference. Like, we, yeah. For me, alcohol was always a means to something else. Right. Okay. And it always had a it always had strings attached, and it always had a reason. It 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 was like the reason for the event or the reason for. Um, why I would do this is I would have to have alcohol first. And, and with normal drinkers, they're just like, oh, okay. It's yeah. there and they like it, but yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is really great that you're, you know, explaining that because I think other people can probably relate to that. And for me, I'm I'm like your husband. You know, I I won't drink because, you know, my husband had a problem as well. 
And thank mm-hmm. God he's been sober for seven years. And that just is really yeah. wonderful. Just like it's wonderful that you're sober. But yeah. um, I know it's a different, it's a whole different thing, you know, yeah. that, um, and it's great that you're saying that so that people can start to look at those red flags now while they're in college. Mm-hmm. Like, is it like, oh boy, I'm going to, I'm going to get to drink or, or, or what is the deal here? Is this yeah, am I be looking some... forward to it all day? Yeah. The way I always thought of it is it's, it's a time sucker. If you're thinking about it all the time, up until when you get to do it, and then as the aftermath occurs, are you thinking in regret and or shame? Right. You know, then there's something wrong with what's going on here. Now, and I get it. People in college, they're going to party, but... I even, I can remember, as much as I said I didn't drink with, like, excessively in college, I still remember there was a lot of shame and fear um, centered around my drinking, as well as at times it did help me, like, just be more relaxed and fit in. Right, right. And I'm I'm pretty sure that happens with a lot of college kids, but, boy, for me, that was my go-to. I mean, if I was feeling uncomfortable. All right, just um, have a drink and then you can let loose. Yeah. 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 No, I know that that was what Lloyd was like too, because he's more of an introvert. So I get it. Yes, For me, I'm such I. an extrovert that <laughs> I don't. Yes. I don't need anything like that. But I get it. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've been doing great, and I first of all, I want to applaud you for that, and and also for your honesty and your book. It's wonderful, and your oh. your sense of humor about you know about who you are and what you've learned and what you've gone through. But you you <laughs> say you. that in your book, you say the best, you know, that relapsing was the best thing that happened for your recovery. So talk yeah, about that. I, I fear saying that because I don't want someone who's having issues to hear that and go, oh, well. You know, <laughs> That's going to be the go best back. thing. <laughs> I'm going to go experiment with the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> but for me, it really was. I had been sober for three years. I got sober in 2011. And... Um, and I did a great job for three years, and then towards the end of those three years, I started to forget who I was before, and I really started to rely on myself. I was like, I've got this. I'm, you know, I'm getting all sassy. Like, I can control this, and I can, I can control everything again. And the mm. relapse happened not really because of alcoholism, or al- I'm going to say alcohol. It happened because I'm addicted to control. Mm. And I'm addicted to perfection. And I'm really addicted to feeling and expectation. Those are the things I'm really addicted to. The alcohol is just a means to an end, right? Right, right. And and I I couldn't grasp that. I mean, if you had told me that in my early years of recovery, that that it was all about control, I really wouldn't have been able to um, work that out. The relapse did that for me. It took me to my knees. It was awful and embarrassing and truly just insanity because you're, I mean, here I am a 40 something. I'm employed. I, you know, look at on the outside. I have a job. I have two small children. We go to church. I'm in charge of Sunday school. I mean, heck, I just look like I was perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And And then I'm hiding vodka bottles in my upstairs closet yeah. in my boots because yeah. that's crazy. So that's where that's where relapse took me and it was it was good. It was good for me to to be that low and to find that depth and then to know that I wasn't gonna die from it. I was gonna come back 
and be okay. Right. Sometimes we have to go to the darkest night of the soul to be able to really look at the light and say, oh, my God, you know, I yeah. see this. And see it for what it is. Yeah. And also to know that we can come back from that. Because for me, truly, relapse was so horrifying when I would think about it before. My dad is a recovered alcoholic as well, some 40 years, and he never relapsed. And he was always very proud of that, as well he should be. But there was part of me that when this happened to me that I thought, oh, no, you know, now I've really screwed up. And But then I was able to come back. And I was able to talk to, you know, people at my recovery group about it. And I was even able to write about it. Although I will have to say writing perfect was a lot tougher yeah. <laughs> than writing bottled. It was like a therapeutic exercise right right yeah and and I have right now I have uh, one of my very dear clients that is in you know in a rehab center and Mm -hmm. this time is the one that she is the one that really decided that she needed to go which before she was pushed into it with you one of these interventions but she's the one yeah, yeah that decided and I think that is a major change and and mm-hmm. I think the same thing for her. You know, she's beautiful, um, you know, had beautiful kids, um, wealthy, yeah. Yeah. wonderful family, and um, just can't be perfect. You just can't maintain that perfection, right? Right. And I, I think, too, I don't know if it's a cultural push or not, but I think in terms of parenting and alcoholism, I think it's really, our parenting now is on display so much and it's so comparison based. It's so like social media is just so strong that I feel like we have more expectations for this perfect thing going on. And it is just so hard to maintain that. Um, And therefore, you know, then we're dropping, you know, trying to, have wine at five o'clock and not feel bad about it. Well, we don't have to feel bad because there's also memes and just out there talking about rosé all day. So yeah. it's really a mixed <laughs> message. <laughs> and we have such a mixed message that we're presented with, especially moms, I think, that, you know, got to have the perfect kid with the, you know, organic yeah. food and all that. But then we can also, we have to drink wine because it's so hard. Right. And, it's and a it's really a thing to do because message. when you when you go out with friends, they're going to have a glass of wine. They're going to have you go to a party. Yeah. Everybody's drinking. Yeah, you yeah. know, I want to go back to what you said about control, and and so mm-hmm. I know what that's like because, especially being an attorney, I'm trying to control everybody, right? <laughs> but <laughs> so you know, I have control issues, but you know, thank God the, the alcohol wasn't it. But you know, I I get it. I get the idea we of control. Have, I think we all have control issues. Honestly. Yeah. And so, so um, this client of mine, for example, said to me, she did not want to be controlled by her husband. And he happens yeah. to be a really nice guy because I know them both very well. And um, and But she, it's interesting because I pointed out to her, I said, yeah, and I don't blame you. I said, you shouldn't be controlled by anyone. You have your own life. However, mm-hmm. look at how alcohol is, you're allowing alcohol to control you. And right. wouldn't, you, wouldn't yep. you believe that? That's really the, the irony of it, right? Oh, yeah, that's totally, this is the thing. You spend your whole existence as a, a control, you know, a control freak that I was, and still am, I still deal with it. I call myself a recovering control freak. <laughs> Um, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I deal with it on the daily basis. But then at the same time, you're right. I'd give myself permission every day at five o'clock, four o'clock 
to, you know, basically unhook. And that's what it was. It was like unhooking. Well, this is kind of funny, but you know when you come home after a long day and you kick off the high heels and you get into the jammies and you unhook the bra and you get, you know, you relax. That's what it was right. like. It was like this whole, like, <laughs> you know, and I just really needed that. But at the same time, I was giving over all that control and power to that thing, and it was sucking my life out of me. So, yeah, that's very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very ironic. And and I think, again, that whole anxiety thing is, is a tough one, you know, to say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, what else can I do when I'm feeling anxious? And I guess, you know, yeah. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a therapist. I have a master's in psychology, but I'm not a therapist. But I mean, it's yeah. interesting to think about what other options do I have? For me, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds. So for me, I keep thinking, okay, when I feel like having that chocolate covered almond that my husband bought, you know, he bought a bunch of them from the store. When I feel like having that, what else could I have? <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead of eating and, that chocolate-covered almond that looks that's calling to me, right? And, you know, it's funny, too, because I feel like we have become almost so prescriptive in everything that we do, though. It's like if we are feeling the slightest bit of discomfort, we can't stand that, and we can't sit with it. And I have to tell you, though, if there were chocolate-covered almonds in my house, I'd probably just eat them, <laughs> darn it. I would. I love those things. But the thing is, like, you know, I, and I read about this in Perfect where I talk about what if, what if there's a situation in your life that's causing you pain and nothing that you've tried is working. And I, I think I talk, I refer to like green juices and yogas and meditation and walking right. your dog and nothing works. Like, and I felt that way for a long time. I kind of felt like a pinball in a pinball machine where I just kept bouncing up against things in the hopes that somewhere along the way it would be like the golden ticket and I'd finally go through and feel okay. Wine for the longest time worked until it stopped and then I got really freaked out. And one of the things that relapse taught me was, and this is really hard, was that sometimes being uncomfortable is just what it has to be. Like you just have to sit with it for a while and, and, or be depressed and deal with the depression as opposed to like trying to immediately fix it. Right. But we're such a fast food people that we can't stand discomfort. And Lord forbid, we, you know, have a little bit of discomfort in our lives. We, we don't like that. But for me, I needed to see the discomfort for what it was and not be afraid of it. And, and then maybe wait with it for a while to really figure out what was going on underneath it. But boy, is that hard. <laughs> yeah. To be kind of the observer. <laughs> yeah, to be the observer. Yeah. I did. And this, this sounds crazy, but I do, it's a great exercise. I would, I would literally visualize sitting in a room with my depression. And that, because that was my thing that kept kind of coming in and out of my life and still does. And it's hormonal and I get it. Like a lot of it is not necessarily going to just go away. It did get a lot better when I stopped drinking. I will say that. Um, and I'm not saying, too, that I, you know, would recommend sticking with depression when you're, like, suicidal for days right, going right. That is not okay. Right, right. But what I mean is I, I have, like, kind of a monthly cycle that goes along with my depression, and I would sit with it in my living room and kind of visualize it just sitting there and going, you know what, I see you, and I see what you're doing, and I know why you're in my life, and you are serving some kind of a purpose, and so I'm not going to be afraid of you, but, you know... I'm going to try and figure this out. And it really helped not to be so scared of the discomfort because 
Right. I take it. I take it back to when I was pregnant, and I was so. I am horrible with pain. I'm the hugest wimp on the planet. <laughs> and basically, from day one, like from conception on, I'm like, epidural, epidural. <laughs> Not doing this naturally. I just want everyone to know. I just like go around and tell everyone the grocery guy. I'm like, I'm not having. I'm not doing natural childbirth, by the way. I would like plastic, not paper, and I'm getting an epidural. Um, But I really did not like pain. And there was a point during Charlie's birth where the epidural wore off on half of my body, which was very Mm. bizarre. And they basically said, sorry, you know, there's nothing you can do. Right. And I can remember sitting there thinking, well, I'm just going to die. Like, I'm going to explode right now. (laughs) I can't feel this pain. And then I was like, yeah, you have to. Like, there's really nothing else I can do. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it was awful, but we got through it on half my body. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> half of me felt the pain. <laughs> yeah, I think I so. think as you, you know, I don't know, is it part of the maturity process or whatever, but I'm, I'm learning to observe myself and observe yeah. thoughts because thoughts are really just thoughts. They're not things. They're not reality often, right? Um, yeah. And, and I'm a meditator, so I, you know, in the morning, like this morning, I was meditating, and I had the stupidest thoughts come in there. And I thought to myself, how interesting. And I just kind of let them flow by. And I think yeah. that some, getting to that point where you can really be the observer of your thoughts and choose different thoughts and realize right. that you have the power to choose your thoughts. And that is so incredibly you know, inspiring and, and freeing that you and don't healing. have to be yeah, and healing. Yeah. You don't have to be, uh, really the, the, the punished by those thoughts because they're just thoughts yeah. and, and emotions. Yeah. yeah. As typically we would be like, Oh, that's terrible. How could you think that you need to get on a different, you need to relax, you need to meditate better. And then the next thing is you're just totally hating yourself for not meditating properly. Whereas yeah. this is just sitting with it. Which yeah. Is good. Just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Hang yeah. loose, as they say in Hawaii. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so how is it that you, you finally did come to that point of, of you know, recovery? Well, when, after the relapse occurred, and, and again, I think I said this, it was a brief seven days of nutball. But then when I did come back from that and I had to start up with the recovery again, I'll tell you, initially I was not happy like I didn't want to do this again I had flunked the I'd been the the Yale graduate of recovery and now I flunked (laughs) out and I didn't want to have to go back I felt like I was going back to community college or something and that was like perfection it was like that whole thing about perfection right that you weren't perfect yes (laughs) yes and I couldn't I couldn't I just thought it was such a bitter pill and then as time passed, and even through the writing of this book, I have to say I was even working this stuff out while I was writing it. And my, my husband will tell you there were many a night when I would come upstairs and lie in bed and be like, <laughs> I can't, yeah. this is so hard, you know. And I was working stuff out, and it really just took me to, um, you know, what is my point? What is this existence on this planet for, for me? And why am I here? And why do I keep doing this? in in this whole, you know, control and perfectionistic cycle thing. And what I really likened it to towards the end of the book is or explained it as is this quest for perfection and these all these expectations that we load up upon ourselves and upon others are really a total waste of time. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. well, and there's more to it, but I'm not going to say any more because I don't, I don't, I don't want you to. I'm not going to give away the spoilers, <laughs> but I will tell you this: I did not come to this huge like dun dun like it, it's. I don't give you the meaning of life in this book. What I do instead is I work through my life and I just talk about my life, and that's what this book is all about. Because if you notice the setup of the book, it is kind of a snarky picture of self-help, which I love self-help. I have right now 20 self-help books <laughs> next to my bed <laughs> waiting for me to read them and fix my life, right? I love self-help, and I used to work the self-help section in a bookstore, and it was, it was profoundly eye-opening. But one thing I do, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying, is I think sometimes we look to that one thing yeah. to just fix it all, and that's not ever the case. There is no one thing. It's right. Just, it's just, you know, it's a journey. Right. It's a journey for each of us. But what I do like about the book is at the end of each chapter, you have little, you know, tidbits. Yeah. Like you have uh, little, tools. Little yeah, tools to help <laughs> jazz up your recovery. I know, you know, my latest book is called Fighting for Love, Turn Conflict into Intimacy. It's a couple's guide. And at the oh. end of every chapter, we have exercises for you to do to really incorporate and Wait. try this with your spouse. Yeah, or your loved love one. I love that because I, I love homework and I love stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I do so too. I can like, yes, I did that and I can check it off and I love little things like right, that. So right, right. I might have you- to try that next next time because my my tools and lists are probably not as helpful as yours but um well no they are helpful I found them helpful but but you know another (laughs) thought is just to like have people really engage with you by Mm -hmm. by doing these exercises but um you know speaking about marriage and relationships since that's one of my expertise you know what you, yeah. what is the upside of living in a marriage that that you call low volume feelings? <laughs> <laughs> I get asked that all the time. What's this low volume feeling thing? And I always liken it and take it back to the movie Jerry Maguire because everybody yeah, knows that movie. I, you talked everybody about loves that. that movie. I think that movie has messed up marriages <laughs> because it's all this you complete me like this. And it's a, I know, it's a romantic comedy and it's Tom Cruise for Pete's sake. It, it's okay. And I do love it. But when he says, you complete me, I just want to bark. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so not true. I want to slap him. I do too. And I just want to go, get a grip. You've got to understand that you, you do not get to have you at hello. Like you've got to let it go and live, you know, make yourself the most complete person that you can be. And then, you know, and Brian, my husband, is constantly on a quest to make himself the most complete person he can be. But he's not, like, constantly, you know, circling me, trying to figure out how to make me happy. Um, And when we first got married, I was constantly circling him, trying to figure out how I could make him happy. Because I was so codependent, and I couldn't see the like the forest through the trees. Like I just really wanted to make sure that everything was all right all the time. And, and I think that's possible. that society is like that. You know, I mean, I felt like yeah. that. So many of my clients felt like that. I think the younger, the, you know, it's the millennials aren't into that as much. But I think this is really yeah. from like my generation of the baby boomers and my parents. I, yeah. I remember my mother being like that, you know, go love up daddy, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> go make daddy happy. And, yeah, yeah. Bring dad dinner and bring it. And I get 
part of that is a cultural thing, and maybe that you're right. Maybe because millennials are never being fiercely independent and fiercely, which is good on the other end of thing. It can it can cause its own problems. But yeah, I'm yeah. So they're too independent. To they're too independent. I, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much. But I I just felt like I was so connected to him, or so wanted to be. Yeah. That it made it was making me sick, and then finally when I got into after my relapse and got into what I call my real recovery, like recovery part two, you know, the real nitty gritty, I started to understand that a marriage does not have to be or should not be this huge, dramatic, romantic, passionate love fest all the time. In fact, if it was, nothing would last. We would just flame out within, you know, a couple months or a year or two or three and I am ex- I'm exhausted by even the concept of this. I know you like, talk about that, but I kind of laugh because I'm I'm a real romantic, and and I'm with my husband now 29 years, so I I I work at that. But but I agree with you. I mean, I can't make him happy. He has to make no. himself happy. And I can yeah. do things that make us both happy, you know, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And he could do things that make us both happy that are fun. But in reality, I can't complete him. He can't complete me. And if we do, then we're yeah. we're definitely codependent. And like you talk about in the book, we need to be interdependent. But believe yeah. it or not, this whole time went so quick. We are out of time. Ah. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Okay. So I'm just going to tell people that um, they can get your book, How to Be Perfect Like Me by Dana Bowman. And Dana, just give your website and it's time to go, mm-hmm. okay? Sure. My website is momsyblog, M-O-M-S-I-E-B-L-O-G.com. Okay. So keep in touch and we look forward to hearing about more wonderful books from you, okay? Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.